Well, my name is Stephen, and I'm the young adult pastor here. And can we thank God for our worship team? Aren't they awesome? Awesome. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little taste of what I do every day. Can we thank God for my amazing wife over here, David? Yes. Yes. So tonight. Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, normally when you get up here and, and preach, you want to have like this really compelling hook to get people that are listening to be interested. But I don't think I'm going to have that problem tonight because tonight I want to talk to you about sex and the glory of God, okay? <laughs> sex and the glory of God. Um, so let's go ahead and pray before we get, get started. Lord, we thank you for your grace on our lives. And Lord, I, I recognize that this topic is a sensitive one. Lord, some of us have had painful experiences with this topic. Some of us are confused about this topic. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would fill me with your presence, that you would speak through my words, that you would open up our ears. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. It's pretty clear from the number of famous men who have admitted to allegations of sexual abuse recently and the widespread response of the Me Too movement, the rampant 10 to $12 billion pornography industry, the sex slave industry that's very much real, even in our local area, and the amount of marriages that are ending due to infidelity, that we are in need of a clear biblical vision for the purpose of sex. And that's what I'm attempting to lay out to you all tonight. From that, we're going to draw some implications for dating, for marriage, for being single, and see what God will do. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can use an app called Uversion. You can also just Google 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. But you're going to want to look at this in the Bible tonight because I want you to be able to follow along, and you'll get a lot more out of it if you are following along. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 through 20. I'm reading from the ESV version. This is God's word to us. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A little bit of the backstory here before we dive into this passage. Corinth was an ancient city. Still, there's a present-day Corinth, but what, where Paul is writing to was a city that was destroyed in 146 B.C. by the Romans, but it was later rebuilt by Julius Caesar in the Ro- as a Roman colony in 44 B.C. And Paul went to this city. The apostle Paul was this a great apostle, this great missionary who went from place to place preaching the gospel and winning people to Jesus. And he went to the city of Corinth. He preached the gospel and he saw many come to know Christ. He founded a church there. He baptized a bunch of believers. And he actually spent about a year and a half in Corinth, which was a very long time for Paul. Because as an apostle, Paul would move around from city to city preaching Christ where Christ wasn't known. But he actually took his time in this city. And because of that, he was able to teach his people and build relationships with them. And the overall message of 1 Corinthians, this is a letter that he wrote to the church. He had left Corinth. He's writing a letter because he has some concerns about what's going on there. And there's some significant concerns. He's making a plea in this letter for unity because there's all kinds of divisions going on in this church. They're divided about who their leader is. They're divided Jew and Gentile. They're divided uh, uh, spiritual gifts. They're even divided amongst lawsuits. They would have lawsuits in this church. Instead of uh, figuring out things themselves within the church, they had to go to a court, to somebody who wasn't a Christian, to decide disputes. That's a kind of disunity that was occurring in this church. And there's a very strong Roman influence in this city that had made its way into the church. These two particular sins of sexual immorality and idolatry, those two kind of go hand in hand a lot of times, and it was true in that church, that the outside influence of this culture had made its way in the church. Prostitution was rampant during that time. And in fact, even in the own church, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That's how crazy sexual immorality was in this church, was that things were happening in the church that wasn't even happening outside in the culture. And the culture during that time, and even what was happening in that church, is pretty consistent with what's happening in our culture today. Sex is primarily viewed as something that's recreational. Just, or even if it's between two committed people, it's normally before they're even married. That's kind of the norm. That's the standard. Homosexuality is considered to be simply a matter of sexual preference, and it's fluid. I mean, listen to any of our popular music or movies today, and it's, you can see the effect that this has had for manhood, because manhood and identity of a man is de- determined by the culture of how many women that you've slept with. And although there's been a strong reaction against this with this Me Too movement, you can see that sex is everywhere in our culture. So the letter of 1 Corinthians and this passage that we're looking at today is pretty applicable to us. And Paul takes about two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6, to cover a wide variety of sexual immorality. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 20. Look at verses 12 through 20. And this is how we're going to kind of break this down is that first in verses 12 through 14, Paul's going to interact with some of the Corinthians' mantras. What I mean by that is these are things that the Corinthians were saying to justify what was going on 
in their church. Then he's going to ask a series of three rhetorical questions to make his point of what sex is and what it isn't. And finally, he gives his conclusion in the latter half of verse 19 and verse 20. So first, let's dive into what the Corinthians were saying to justify their behavior. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now, he says this twice. And if you notice, it's in quotes. Because this isn't something that Paul is saying. This is something that the church in Corinth is saying to justify their sin. And basically what they're saying is, Christ came, he died, he rose again, and now we have freedom. And because we have freedom, we're no longer under the Old Testament laws. We're no longer under circumcision. We don't have to get circumcised, our men. We don't have to, the dietary laws no longer apply to us because Christ is here. And these laws that were initiated in the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, some of these things, you may have heard if you say that you're a Christian, somebody's not a Christian, they often say, well, does that mean that we have to follow this rule that you can't have two different types of cloth? Has anybody ever heard that? Somebody said that to you, they kind of bring up some old laws in Leviticus. Well, what those were, were ceremonial laws. They were laws that God instituted to keep his people distinct from the surrounding cultures. So you couldn't wear a shirt with two different types of cloth because what God was trying to communicate to his people was that you're to be separate, you're to be distinct, even in the clothing that you wear. And in part, the church in Corinth was correct, that because Jesus came, he came now for us, we have a, a lot more freedom in Christ. I mean, we could see that with you go out and you have a beer or a glass of wine, and that is not a sin. That is a Christian freedom that you have. Men do not have to get circumcised. We can go out to Red Lobster and eat lobster and have a great time. We don't have to follow strict Jewish dietary laws. But what the Corinthians were doing is they were taking this freedom beyond what was biblical. They were extending it to adopt the culture's rampant sexual appetite and justify it for their own gain. They had made the slogan, their rationale. All things are lawful. Essentially what they're saying is that a person can have sex whenever they craved it because all things are lawful in Christ. And Paul responds to this slogan in verse 12 with two counter arguments. Look what he says. He says, not all things are helpful. Now that's interesting because most of the time we ask, especially if we're in a dating relationship, how far is too far? But Paul's standard is, are these things helpful? Is it wrong to have a boyfriend or girlfriend over at your house late at night, you alone on a couch at 2 a.m.? In of itself, it's not. You could be reading the Bible together, <laughs> and it would be completely lawful for you. But is it helpful? Probably not. Probably not. A personal conviction of mine is a couple, maybe eight or nine years ago, I got rid of my Facebook. Not because I was super strong and super holy, but because I recognized my weakness. I recognized that something that could be helpful was not being very helpful to me. That it was an avenue for me to entertain things that I shouldn't be entertaining. And so I got rid of it because the standard is what is helpful to me, not necessarily what is permissible. 
See, the Corinthians had individualized the effect of their sexual conduct. They were thinking of sex in terms of how it affected just them. But that word helpful actually implies more than just, is it helpful to me? It also has an implication of, is this helpful for those around me? And we don't think about sex like that. We don't think about how this affects other people. But the word is primarily talking about the helpfulness for others. See, I've seen this in men and women who are stuck in pornography. The lie that oftentimes is believed is, well, this is just hurting me, so it can't be that bad. As long as nobody else is affected by it, as long as it's just a personal thing, then I can go ahead and do it. I'm willing to suffer the consequences, but it's not harming anybody. But what happens when the guilt and the shame of this sin consumes you? And because of it, you can't look beyond yourself because you're so stuck in sin that you can't see beyond yourself. And now all of a sudden, you can't see the needs of those people around you. You can't see the opportunities to serve. You can't see the opportunities to use your gift because you're so consumed with the guilt and the shame that you're experiencing. Something has become not helpful, actually hurtful to the body of Christ. The way we view sex should be, will this activity be a help or a hindrance to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I had, there's a site pastor at our church in Sterling, and he came and spoke to our youth group when I was in middle school. And I'll never forget, he told us his story of how he got married. And he said something so crazy that pretty much half the people in the uh, audience, teenagers, just started laughing when he said this. He said, the very first time he kissed his girlfriend, who was his fiance, who would soon be his wife, the very first time he kissed her was on the altar when he got married. That was so crazy. That was so radical. That was so even bizarre, so strong. And yet as a sixth grade boy, I thought, wow, that's an example I can follow. That's someone who used their sexual ethic as an example for others to help the body of Christ. For that person, it was bigger than just me and my girlfriend. It was how, God, can I bring glory to you with the way that I honor you with my body? All things are lawful for me. Look at Paul's second response to that. He says, I will not be dominated by anything. Interesting. See, in an effort to justify their sexual immorality with the excuse that they were free to have sex with whoever and whenever they wanted, ironically, the Corinthians had become enslaved to their, quote, freedom. That which they thought made them free was actually enslaving them. And anybody who's experienced sexual sin knows how it can be enslaving. It starts out feeling really freeing. It, it starts out being a great moment where you get to experience this with somebody else. But then all of a sudden when you can't stop, you recognize that that sexual freedom is now a source of your enslavement. I will not be dominated by anything. Here's the third mantra or saying that the Corinthians were throwing out. They say in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, there are two really difficult verses in this passage, really difficult to understand and this is the first one. There's some debate about whether Paul is saying the line and God will destroy both one and the other as a response to the, to the Corinthians mantra food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, 
or if this line is a continuation to the Corinthians mantra. So I'm going to go with the second opinion, and here's why. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God will destroy your body if you're a Christian. It says in the Bible that when Jesus comes back, your body will be resurrected, that you will ascend with Christ. You'll be given a resurrected body. So what I think is happening here is the Corinthians are saying, you know what? It's okay. It's okay because just like food goes into the stomach, that's a natural process, so we've been given sexual organs to have sex. That's just a natural thing. And by the way, our bodies are going to just be destroyed anyway. We're going to die. We're going to disintegrate. So what, matter do, what does it matter if we actually honor God with these physical bodies? We'll honor him with our spirit. There's kind of this dualism going on, a separation of the spirit and the body. And that was, that was prevalent during that day. And Paul's taking that head on. This is what he says. God... He responds to God will destroy both one and the other with the end of verse 3. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here's what he's saying. The body is not meant for satisfying your cravings in this life. Your body has a much bigger purpose than that. Your body exists to bring glory to God. It's not just that these Corinthians are doing things with their body, things that are wrong. It's that their view of their body's purpose is too small. Their view just encompasses themselves. Their view is limited to this world. And what Paul's saying is, think bigger about the use of your body. Your body is meant for just more than you. Your body is meant to glorify God, and your body is going to live forever with God. Your body was made for more than 30 minutes of pleasure on a computer or a night with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Your body was made to bring glory to God forever. This body is not meant for destruction. That's not the end game for Christians. Your body, you'll die, your spirit will go and be with God, but when Jesus comes back, he will resurrect your bodies. You'll be given new bodies. You'll be in a glorified state, so much so that if we saw each other right now in our glorified bodies, we'd probably bow down and worship each other. That's the, that's the glory around just a resurrected body. When, when the disciples saw Jesus after he appeared, what did they do? They thought he was a ghost. They had never seen anyone like this. They, this, this being was otherworldly to them. And that's the type of body that you and I, if we're following Christ, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be given. Now, Paul gives us three questions. Okay, that's, that was verses 12 through 14. Let's look at verse 15. And there's some real power with asking questions. Remember I sat in the office of one of the pastors here about six years ago, hoping to be delivered from an area of sin in my life that unbeknownst to me, I was blinded to because of lies that I had believed that prevented me from getting free. And the pastor who sat down with me asked me a series of questions that God used as a mirror to hold up so that I could see my sin. And in that, I saw my sin, and I saw God's grace and the forgiveness that was offered to him in Jesus Christ. I saw the lies for what they were, lies. Sometimes a series of really good questions have that effect. They make us look in the mirror, and the word of God is a mirror. It makes us see us for who we are and see the glory of Jesus Christ 
And that's what Paul's going to do here. He's going to throw out three questions. Now, he uses this phrase, do you not know, this question, 10 times in the book of Corinthians. Because remember, he has an extensive history with this group of people. He administered to them for a year and a half. So he's told them a lot of things, and he's reminding them, hey, I've told you a lot of things. And he's going to use three times, do you not know, in this passage. He says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, when he says members, he's not talking about like a Sam's Club membership. <laughs> that word members, it means a body part, a limb, an ear, an eye, a foot. And here's his point. One of Paul's favorite analogies for the church, you and I, believers, those who follow Jesus Christ, one of his favorite analogies is the body of Christ. And what he, he goes on to say later in 1 Corinthians 12 that each one of us, if we're following Jesus, we're members of Christ's body. We're body parts of Jesus. And here's why that's important. Because the most important event that ever happened on this earth was when Jesus died and rose again. Our faith is completely centered on that historical event. But here's the problem. None of us here today saw that event. So we're dependent on people telling us about it. We're dependent on people living it. And so God, in his wisdom, allows us to be the body of Jesus. That people weren't there when Jesus died and rose again, but they see us, they see a Christian's life who is on fire for God, who's living as if Jesus really did get up off out of the grave and goes, wow, that Jesus must be alive because that person is living completely different than me. You're a hand of Jesus. You're a foot of Jesus. You're an ear of Jesus. God has given gifts to every person in this room who's a follower of Christ to serve the body of Christ. Jesus is the head, and we make up the rest of his body, metaphorically speaking. And so what Paul asks is, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Here's what he's asking incredulously. Shall I then tear the limbs from Christ, the organs from Christ, and make them the limbs and the organs of a prostitute. That's effectively what we're doing when we engage in sexual immorality. And his response is the strongest no in the original language. He says never, or may it never be. Now, you may be think, sitting there thinking, wait a second, I, I've never had sex with a prostitute, so this obviously does not apply to me. <laughs> But this, this term prostitute encompasses all of sexual sin. He's using it as a placeholder because he's already addressed adultery, incest, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage. He's running the gamut. He's talking about everything that encompasses sexual immorality and he's using prostitution as an example because that was what was widespread during that culture. So you could substitute whatever you want there, porn, sex with your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever you want to use, you can put it there. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that our own sin doesn't just affect our own body, it affects Christ. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he, here's the second one, here's the second question. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What he's saying here is sex is not a physical transaction. It's not just something we do recreationally or simply for, for pleasure. 
He's citing a verse that goes all the way back to Genesis, the first two humans, Adam and Eve. The very two, first two people who had sex. And he says that in that moment, the two become one. Sex is a spiritual joining. It's not just a physical interaction. The two become one flesh. This is why sex is reserved for marriage. Because two bodies are becoming one. And with my wife in marriage, because we become one flesh, her dreams are not my dreams. What affects her affects me. If you say something against her, you said something against me. If something she's excited about, if there's something she's excited about, I'm excited about it. Because God has intertwined the two of us together in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, we'll talk about this the next time we meet February 17th. Paul calls that union a mystery. How these two people in marriage become one. But there's a real vulnerability to that. To have your weaknesses exposed to another partner, the good and the bad, to be joined together. But the security comes from knowing that we're in covenant with each other. That we're never going to quit this covenant. That this is an enduring forever covenant. And anybody who's had parents who've been divorced know how painful the ripping of two bodies apart can be. And what Paul's saying is, are you sure you want all that joining and ripping? Joining and ripping, joining and ripping. Because if 50% of marriages end in divorce, 50% of two people who under the covenant of God swear to each other to live together in holy matrimony forever, their time on this earth, in front of witnesses, in front of friends, in front of family, and 50% bow out, even with that kind of covenant, even with that kind of covering, are you sure you want to be joined with somebody outside of marriage? Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, Paul's presenting two mutually exclusive alternatives, cleaving to a prostitute or cleaving to the Lord. If you're joined to someone else, you can't be joined to God. Sure, you can be a Christian and have sex outside of marriage. You can be a Christian and look at pornography. But what happens in that moment is you don't experience the richness of the joining of God. What was happening with the Corinthians is that they were exchanging the rich joining, the fellowship, the life, the love of relationship with an eternal God for the joining of a woman or man that was momentary. That's why in verse 18, he makes it very clear, very clear, very clear. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't play around with it. Don't come close to it. Don't watch it. Don't have fun with it, don't envy other people who are doing it, flee from it. And think about for a second an example of this, Genesis 39, there's a person named Joseph, many of you might be familiar with the story, this woman named Potiphar who was another man's wife came to him, tried to seduce him, and in that moment, what did he do? He ran, and she reached out and grabbed a really expensive coat, a coat that had a lot of significance to him, a coat that was given to him by his father, which was really the only token of memory he had of his dad because he had been separated from his dad for so long. 
But he didn't lose any sleep over losing that coat. Because he recognized, I'd rather have my soul than my coat. And oftentimes, when I talk to a couple who are living together, which is not that uncommon anymore, the first thing out of their mouth when we, after we find out, if, are you a believer? Are you following Jesus? Okay, here's what God calls in terms of holiness and your relationship. They say, well, I don't know how I'm going to pay for rent. Translation, I value my coat more than my own life. You're having face, let's say you're on Facebook. Facebook is a great thing to connect with other friends or some other social media thing. But let's say that is an avenue for you to stumble time after time again in sin. We say, you know what? Maybe it's a good idea to put this on the shelf for a little bit until you can get some victory in this area. But I'm so, I'll be so disconnected from my friends. I'll be so out of the loop. I love my coat. Give up the coat and keep your soul. Second half of verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, this is the second hard part of this passage. This is one of the most puzzling statements in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's what I think is happening here. I'm not smart enough to figure this out, okay? I read a lot of people. Look at, that, look at that phrase, verse 18. The phrase, every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How is this different than every other sin? We know that any sin committed against God is equal in the sense that all of it deserves God's wrath and judgment, okay? None of us are good enough to stand before a righteous God. All of us, our only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ that atones for our sin. All sins are equal in that regard. But let me ask you this. If I lied to one of you, okay, if I lied to a person, do you think that it has a different ramifications than if I have sex outside of marriage with that person? Sure, I can repent before God and that person and instantly be forgiven by God. In God's book, I am pure and clean. But the effects of that sin and my healing and that person's healing are going to be com two completely different things. There's something about sinning sexually that's body tearing. Doesn't mean it can't be forgiven. Doesn't mean God is here to forgive that and to cleanse you and to help walk you through that healing and that we're not here because all of us at some level have committed sexual sin. But what it does mean is it's a different type of sin in that the healing process takes longer. Verse 19, do you not know that your body, this is, the last, this is the third question, the last question, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, the purpose of a temple was to bring glory to God and to sanctify or to make holy his name. And Paul's already described in this letter in chapter three how collectively the church is a temple of God. It's where God dwells. The church is a household or a temple, or a dwelling place of God. But now he's going to take it a step further and say that you individually, if you're following Christ, are a temple of God. Your body is a temple. Do you want to exchange the dwelling of God within you, the presence of God, for doing life on your own? Because when you commit sexual immorality, 
God's, as a Christian, God's still living inside of you, but you become so numb to his presence that it's, it's as if he's not there. You walk around asking God, where are you? I can't hear you. But you've been numb to the reality that God's living inside of you. And so when we, we have a choice between do we want to experience the richness of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, or do we want to do things on our own? And here's the conclusion, the main point. He wraps it up, end of verse 19. He says, you are not your own, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There is hope for every person in this room. I don't care what kind of sexual experience you've had, what kind of craziness you've been in, what kind of things you've looked at, what kind of relationships you've been, what kind of history you have before Christ, while you got saved, any of that. There's hope because of the gospel. This verse makes that very clear. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus Christ went the distance for you. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He worked miracles, healings, wonders. He died on a cross. He rose again all to purchase you. He paid the price for you. So Paul says, Glorify God with your bodies. Your body is not your own body. It's God's because he purchased you. He redeemed you. He won you with his blood. That's the price he paid. So glorify God with your body. Two-pronged application. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't engage in it. But then don't just not do that. Use your body to glorify God. Let your body be a living sacrifice to the almighty God. So in closing, I want to address seven groups of people tonight. And you're going to find yourself in multiple groups. Okay? Possibly. The first is somebody who's here and who's not a believer. If you're here, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you came, maybe a friend brought you, checking things out, thank you for coming. Honestly, we seriously are grateful that you're here. And you're hearing this, and it sounds old-fashioned. It sounds like an impossible standard. It sounds almost laughable. Why would I wait till marriage to have sex? And I would just suggest the culture that's so opposite of this, where is that culture leading us? This sexual revolution, this idea that sex is recreational, it's a matter of our cravings, we need to try someone out before we marry them and commit to them in marriage. Where is that leading us? It's led us to a whole bunch of women saying, me too. It's led us to a divorce rate that's over 50%. It's led us to people choosing the most important relationship of their life by swiping right. Perhaps sex is more than a transaction. Maybe it was designed by God to be an expression of intimacy in the security of the covenant of marriage. Perhaps instead of using your body as a vehicle for your own pleasure, perhaps you were made to be joined by God and to God. Maybe the longing you're experiencing in a relationship that's not satisfied and makes you have to go from relationship to relationship, looking for that satisfaction, looking for that sense of belonging, for that intimacy, maybe you were created for something above that. Instead of a guy or a girl who won't fulfill you, maybe you were meant to have a joining with God where you experience the richness of a relationship with him. Second category, those who are here, who are Christians, and who have blown it sexually. Probably 80 or 90% of us would say, you know what, Stephen, I wish I would have heard this message seven years ago or 10 years ago or three years ago, but it is too far for me. I've gone too far. 
It's too late. And the hope of the gospel is it's never too late. Christ came down on this earth and his body was broken on the cross so that your body could be made whole. There's forgiveness, there's healing for you on the cross. Receive in it, walk in it, flee from sexual immorality. Glorify God with your body from this day forward. Have an example for those around you, for your kids one day, that you made a decision tonight to honor God with your body. Thirdly, probably the most painfully, those of you who are here who have been sexually abused at some point, Someone ripped away your innocence and used it for their own sinful enjoyment. And this sermon has been extremely painful for you because it brings up memories, painful memories, terrible memories. And for you, I would just say that God is a healer. He's a redeemer. Psalm 30, verse 11, you've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And maybe in a generation, maybe right now in a time where millions of men and women are saying me too, maybe you can say that with hope in those words. That there was something on the other side of that. There was redemption on the other side of that. And that now you have a testimony of God healing you that can be a hope for those around you who are hurting What, what category am I on? Four? Number four? Number four, those of us right now who are stuck in porn, probably a lot of us, to be honest, probably a lot of us, remember that your body is a part of Christ's body, his church. And when you look at porn, you're being joined to what you are looking at. Remember, your body is a temple of the Lord. Flee from sexual immorality. Surrender to Christ by confessing your sin. Find somebody here. Come up afterwards and pray. If you're in any of the categories, I don't want anybody thinking that just the people who come up here are in pornography. But if you're in any of the categories, I'll, I'll come up here and I'll receive prayer first, okay? Let's just make a pact that we're not gonna, anybody who comes up here, we're just gonna all, all understand that we're all flawed human beings who have had some kind of sexual sin in our past and we all need the redemption of God. Be honest about your sin, your addiction. Get prayer. Have somebody keep you accountable. You were made to glorify God for your body and not for cheap, unfulfilling moments of pleasure. There's healing, there's hope, there's testimony of victory. You can walk in wholeness, you can walk in healing. When I minister to men, I minister as a man who's been free from that. God can do that for you. All right, last three categories here. Group of you who are single. And I know there's, it's, at times, it's hard. There are lonely moments. If you have a desire of being married, there are moments of, when will I ever get married? Will I ever get married? but also recognize that your singleness is a gift. There's a freedom to serve the Lord and to be fruitful for him. Don't settle. Don't settle on just anybody who passes by. Glorify God in your singleness. And while you wait, know that you've been joined with God and that there's a fellowship that's far richer than even marriage can offer. If there's a choice between marriage and between God, I'm taking God. Because the richness that is in my relationship with God is far greater than even the best marriage possible. 
Enjoy the richness of his fellowship, of his love, of his companionship, and don't waste your single years. Those of you who are dating, you're like, oh, snap, we got to have a conversation. <laughs> we got to have a conversation after this. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, preemptively. I'm sorry that you have to have that conversation, maybe for some of you, but it's a good conversation to have. The ultimate question concerning your relationship is not, is it lawful? How far is too far? The ultimate question is, well, a question is, is it helpful? Is it helpful for us? Is it helpful for the body of Christ? How can you be a model for your friends and perhaps if you get married for your children one day of how to date for the glory of God? Flee sexual immorality. Don't put yourself in those positions. Decide as a couple what are going to be boundaries for you. We're not going to do this alone. We're not going to spend time at this time. We're going to let somebody know where we're going if we're alone. Allow people to speak into your relationships. Give permission to people that are mentors to ask you the tough questions. I dated my wife in a pastor's house. I just, I didn't trust myself. I knew my, my sin. And so I was always letting people know where I was going, what I was doing, because I, I knew I had to give an account, not just for my own life, but for hers. How can you date for the glory of God? Last category, those who are married. February 17th, we're going to dive more into marriage, and we'll talk more about that. But those of you who are single or dating, still come because we're going to give a biblical vision of what marriage is. But those of you who are married, sex within the covenant of marriage is God-glorifying. He created it. Worship God with your spouse through a loving, intimate relationship with them. And don't look for intimacy outside of your marriage. Remember that your spouse did not redeem you. Your spouse cannot fulfill you. Your spouse cannot save you. There is only one savior. There's only one redeemer, and that is Jesus Christ. Let your marriage be a picture of God's glory to those around you. Let's pray.